This morning, we are in the second part of a three-week uh, series that we are calling I Object. And, um, and the, the heart passage um, for this series is found in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. And I'm going to um, have us uh, put this, the verse up here on the screen so we can uh, see it together. But here's what it says. Luke chapter 2, verse 10 um, says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that is for all people. And we happen to believe that that is true, that the Christmas season is ultimately this invitation from God to us to experience great joy. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, uh, what your background is, what your story is. If you are one of the all people, then great joy is available to you. The very things our hearts long for, the very things the hearts of the people that we are connected to long for is offered to us. Great joy. The problem is... For many of us, what Christmas unfortunately brings is a series of objections and a series of obstacles that actually stand in the way of us experiencing that joy that Christmas offers. Um, whether those obstacles are intellectual obstacles like we talked about last week, or whether those obstacles are emotional obstacles like uh, what we're going to talk about this morning. There are people in this room and in the world around us who are not experiencing the joy that is offered to all people because there are objections in their hearts and in their minds, and there are obstacles standing in the way of receiving and accepting those. So this series, we want to just take... uh, Three weeks to look at some of those objections, some of those obstacles, and um, man, just see what the Bible has to say to those of us who might say, I, I want joy, and I hear you all talking about it, but I can't get there because this objection and this obstacle stands in the way. And so last week, uh, we looked at the intellectual objection of doubt. Uh, For folks who say, man, I would buy into this joy and I would even receive and experience this joy. But I just doubt that this Christmas story is true. I doubt the historicity of the claims of Jesus, you know, coming into this world to offer hope and to forgive sin. And what we did was just spend some time looking at the fact that the story of Christmas can be trusted just like you would trust any other historical event that you would buy into. And that is so important because if I reject the historicity of the Christmas story, then I reject the joy that that story offers. And for many people, the reason they can't accept the joy of Christmas is because intellectually that just doesn't make sense. And so we spent some time talking about that. And if you missed it, we would encourage you uh, to go back and uh, listen to that. And this morning, we want to address not so much the intellectual objection, but the emotional objection of disappointment. That there are some in this room and beyond it who would say, I hear you. And I would love to embrace the joy that's offered, but my heart is just racked with 
disappointment that doesn't allow me to get there. And uh, at Christmas time, we like to really try and look at um, some of the most simple truths in Scripture and make things really basic. And that's what our hope is um, again this morning as we look at the objection of disappointment. So again, if you have a copy of the scriptures, meet me in Luke chapter 1. We're going to start um, reading at verse 5. We're going to pick up where we left off um, last week, Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 5. Um, and we're going to pause as we read through this story to make some, um, some observations Um, as we lead towards what I believe the Lord wants us to see in this story. So Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 5. Here's what it says. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, we'll talk about him a little bit uh, next week, but I love again the fact that Luke starts by saying, I want you to know that this is a historically accurate and true story. In fact, let me give you the context into which this story was set. History. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. And his wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. So, uh, when Luke begins the Christmas story, um, or the prelude to the Christmas story, he introduces us um, to a sweet, as we'll soon discover, elderly couple, a man named Zechariah, who's a priest, and his wife, Elizabeth, Z-Money and Biddy, if you will. But for some reason or another, when Luke introduces us to this couple, he wants us to feel like we've known them for years and years and years. And in order to do that, without even asking their permission, he volunteers some pieces of their story. Uh, Some of the pieces we'll discover about them are very tame, basic pieces, things you would consider telling someone on your way out of church in the lobby. And then he's going to eventually take us into more delicate um, and tender places, and he'll share some pieces about their story that many of us would not consider telling anyone over the span of our lifetimes. So the first thing he tells us about them is is here in this verse, number five. And it's that they were both descendants um, of the Old Testament character named um, Aaron. And uh, for those of you who are familiar uh, with the Old Testament, Aaron was the older brother of the guy named Moses. Um, Aaron was the forefather of what became, his descendants became uh, what are now known as the Levites. The Levites descended from Aaron. Uh, There was something very unique about the Levites that was true about nobody else. And it was the fact that the Levites were that unique tribe of people in the nation of Israel that God called to serve him as priests. Uh, They were the only tribe that God called or permitted to serve him in the temple. And so when Luke introduces us to Zechariah and Elizabeth and tells us, yeah, they were descendants of Aaron, he just wants us to know that this guy was born and bred to be a priest. And so when we meet him priesting, he's doing the very thing that is in his blood, the very thing that God created and called him 
to do. And by the way, you're going to hear us harp on this here at Mission Point because we believe that is true about every single one of us, that none of us are an accident and none of us are accidental, but that God has bred us to uniquely impact the world around us. And something mystical starts to happen when we discover what we've been bred for and we start to do that thing. And when we meet Zechariah, he is priesting on account of the fact that he's a Levite. That's the thing he's been called to. And that, that, that simple fact is going to become significant um, later on in the story that Zechariah was... A priest. But Luke also wants us to know that when we meet this couple, they are couple goals. Uh, This is the couple you would only dream of becoming when you get a little bit older. Um, Not only is Zechariah living out his calling, but look at what it says about them in verse 6. It says both of them were righteous in the sight of God. What an accusation for heaven to make of you. Observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Now, I I love my kids. I just thought I'll just share that with everybody while we're in this little intimate snowy uh, moment here. I love my kids. And um, sometimes I I even like my kids. Um, A lot of times I like my kids in their room. Don't judge what you don't understand. You weren't there, so you don't know. Um, uh, But... I'm just trying to be like God, because I don't know if you knew this, but God, and we'll see this here in a second, he might love you, but he doesn't always like you. And for some of you, you came to church to discover the fact that maybe God doesn't like you. Merry Christmas. But here's the reality. God may love, but he doesn't always like us because just as is true in any relationship, if we're in a relationship that, you know, is filled with conflict and we're pulling in opposite directions, that relationship ceases to be enjoyable. So if God says to you, I want you to honor your parents and you say, I'm not going to honor my parents, he's not going to enjoy you that much. If he calls you and commands you to do certain things and you disregard them, he's not going to enjoy you. He may love you, but he doesn't like you all that much. All that to say, when we meet Zechariah and when we meet Elizabeth, they aren't simply loved by God. He enjoys them. He delights in them. He sings over them because he considers them blameless. A couple that is intent on doing the things that he calls them and commands them to do. They were blameless. And for you theologians, not blameless in the positional sense, blameless in the actual sense that they are living lives of obedience to God himself. And then, as Luke continues to introduce us to them, the scene darkens. And this is what we want to see. Luke again, divulges some delicate and painful pieces of their story. Pieces, my guess is they would not volunteer to us sitting in this room on a Sunday morning. I feel a little iffy outing some of 
there pain, but it is here in the Bible. Look at verse 7. It says, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. So Luke takes us into the inner chambers of this couple's pain. Because make no mistake about it, Zechariah and Elizabeth would have had no greater earthly longing than to have and hold a baby of their own. That would have been their greatest earthly desire. If for no other reason but the fact that in this cultural context, children defined you. In this cultural context, children actually are what gave you as a couple a sense of value. As a man, your name would be extinguished and forgotten forever unless, of course, you had a kid to carry it down to the next generation. Are you even a man, Zechariah? He would have naturally wanted nothing more. And as a woman, there would have been no greater earthly crown or accolade than the thought that you played your part in continuing the name and the line of your family down to the next generation. And so for Zechariah and Elizabeth, Luke tells us, Theirs was a painful reality of a longing unmet. Because without kids, your name gets extinguished. And of course, ironically enough for them, people would have assumed (laughs) that there was something about them God didn't like. Which was why he was refusing to show up and meet their deepest longing in giving them a child. This is one of the most shameful, painful pieces that Luke could have revealed about them. That Zechariah and Elizabeth had lived with the shame of not being a real family. And in that context, they had carried the stigma of being considered despised by God, ironically enough. Otherwise, he would have met them in this space. I wonder if people thought, although Zechariah is a priest, I wonder if that dude isn't hiding some serious skeletons under the floorboards of his life, because clearly God is holding out on him for a reason. In a superstitious culture, that's the stigma they would have lived with, knowing people are talking sideways about them. When they went to the market. Luke wants us to know when we meet this sweet, older, godly couple, they had been carrying deep disappointment for decades and decades. Elizabeth even acknowledges that later on in the passage, that she lived not just with disappointment, but with disgrace. Look at verse 25. After she experiences a little bit of resolution, she says, The Lord has done this for me. Uh, In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. 
So disappointment and disgrace. And now Luke again wants us to know that they're an older couple, which means they are running out of time. In fact, as we'll see if you continue to read the story, they are out of time. And so I imagine at this point, they've just done that thing called resignation. They've just settled into the reality that this is their lot in life. These are the cards they've been dealt. Disappointment and disgrace is their cross to bear. They'll never experience this earthly longing realized. They'll never be like everyone else. A cultural disgrace who will be forgotten forever in, well, any time now, because Luke wants us to know that they are old. Uh, Luke takes us a little bit further into uh, a, a quadrant of pain and disappointment that is easy to miss when we read this story, something I didn't realize until this past week. Look at verse 8. He says, once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot, um, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Now, uh, there's nothing particularly unique or special um, about uh, Zechariah. Um, as a priest. Uh, He's one of about 18,000 priests. Um, And the way it would work for the priest in that particular context is each priest would belong to a division, would belong to a little clique, would have a little band of priests that would serve together. And these priests would anticipate the highlight of their year. Uh, And it would happen twice in a calendar year for them. That's two times in a given year. uh, This band of priests would get to go to the temple for a week-long stint. So they would go serve together at the temple for a week-long stint in the presence of God. And on behalf of their people, this was a Big deal for these guys. Their annual gig. Um, Now, by the way, before you get, you know, all high and mighty talking about, oh, must be nice to work two weeks a year and pastors only work on Sunday, whatever. But here's the thing. They were still priesting the rest of the year. But the the peak of their priest experience was this week-long stint that would happen two times in a given year. Um, but beyond that two week, you know, those week long stints, uh, was something that every single priest would have longed and anticipated for more than anything else. During those two weeks, one of the priests in that party 
would have the privileged responsibility of overseeing the sacrifices. And it says here that he lit the incense. They would have that distinct responsibility of overseeing the sacrifices and going into a room that only they could go into. That was thought to be a holy place where God would show up. But how it was decided which priest got to go into that room and do this incredible gig was by the casting of lots. It was a glorified version of rock, paper, scissor or or the throwing of dice. And the thing about this experience of going into this unique room where the presence of God dwelt was if you were a priest, you only got to do this once in your entire life and never again. So when I read this story, I'm saying I know I should be happy for Zechariah because his number got called. Uh, the, The lots landed on him. He gets to go in and do this absolutely incredible thing. And yet my heart reads this story and I feel the weight of the sadness of it. Because Luke wants us to know that Zechariah was really Old, which meant for decades and decades and decades he had served as a priest. Year after year, he would go with his band of brothers to the temple. And for decades and decades, the lots would be cast and they never landed on him. For years and years, he was always left out. And he would have to go back home to Elizabeth and say to her, maybe next year. That had to have been a disappointment above disappointments. That is, those are twin towers of disappointment. Because here's a man who doesn't feel that he's a real family man because he can't have a kid. And here's a man who doesn't feel his career is going well because God has refused to let the dice roll in his favor and invite him into the Holy of Holies. At some point, Zechariah had to start wondering, God must be against me because he won't do this for me and he won't let me go into this place to accept experience this moment, which means for decades they had lived with disappointment upon disappointment upon disappointment. When we meet Zechariah and Elizabeth, things are starting to turn for them, but Luke wants us to know that this is a couple that has lived with immense and intense disappointment. And for many of us, And for many of the people we know, we may not relate to talk about Levites and priests and temples, but disappointment. Oh, I get that. I wish I didn't, but I get that part of the story. Because if we were honest, and if somebody outed our deepest chambers of our worlds, you would discover that we know the ache of deep longings unmet. In fact, for many, it's that deep disappointment that stands in the way of the great joy that Christmas offers, not intellectual objections of doubt, but the deep emotional objection of 
disappointment. Because after all, it's that time of year when everybody is supposed to be merry and everybody is supposed to be cheery and everything is supposed to be bright and we get to go to the temple again. It's that time of year. And yay, this is supposed to be really awesome. You know, according to everybody else's posts on social media, this is supposed to be the fantastic time of magical blessings and whatever else Christmas is supposed to hold. And so we feel we have to play along. And then the church people, they start going on and on about how Christmas is about joy and Christmas is about hope and Christmas is about a God who is supposed to care about me. And excuse me if I object. Because Christmas is just another reminder that if there is a God, he definitely could not possibly hear me or see me or care about me. Or maybe he does see me and he does hear me and is out to get me, is out to punish me because the odds have been against me and and things have not worked out in my favor and my deepest disappointments have not been Resolved. Christmas is just another reminder that I'm the only priest without kids. I'm the old guy who's never been chosen to go in and light the incense. Christmas is just a reminder that another year is coming to an end. And the thing that I long for most deeply has not been realized. Hey, joy to the world. Disappointments. The breakthrough in my health is not here. If anything, my health continues to deteriorate. The tension in our family relationships seem to continue to escalate. And Christmas is just a reminder of which family members not talking to which family member and which families we have to navigate so these people don't get in with these people and we have to be in the middle. It's just another reminder of the drama and the dysfunction of resolution unrealized. And it's been going on for years and years and Years. All I want is that job that I have been working so hard for and that job that has been promised to me. But year after year, it seems like I get looked over and I have to tell everybody, you know, that I'm still doing the same job that I've been doing for the past five years, talking about the possibility of maybe I get a promotion and now I can't even afford the gifts that everyone else seems to be able to get. And I'm tired of being alone. And the stigma that this culture puts on singleness, on people like me, and there's no worse time of the year when everybody is posting their cutesy family photos. A reminder of the deep longing unmet. Disappointment. So excuse me if I object to this whole joy thing that Christmas is supposed to be. About, I'm a college student, and um, I don't get to go home for Christmas. I have to go home for Christmas and navigate and referee my parents' drama. I just long to be the kid for once. A 
grown-up kids. Be nice if they would call once in a while. It's been almost three years, and uh, you know we've been in the process of adopting three girls from Haiti. And um, Christmas is just a reminder that another year is coming to an end, and that longing has not been realized. In fact, you start to wonder: Are people snickering about you in the marketplace, talking about we've heard about these phantom little Haitian girls that are coming to your home, but we don't see them? That's an awesome Ponzi scheme you guys are running. You know, very, very cool. Well played. Well played. Either that, or God must have just decided: Listen, you guys are not good enough to be parents. Disappointment. This Christmas, the disappointment of deep longings unmet will keep many of us and many that we know and love from entering in and receiving the great joy that God holds out, which is why I love the Bible and I love this story. That when Luke wants to tell us the Christmas story, this is where he chooses to start. He begins by introducing us to a couple who are in a place of deep, deep disappointment. And they've been here for a while. How awesome is that? Because it has to mean that the Christmas story is not precious moments about perfect people who have no pain and who have no problems in their life. It has to mean the story of Christmas is about real people like you and me with real pain and real ache and real unmet longings who experience real disappointment in our world. And it's into that that the Christmas story is written. And so I just want to say to you, by the way, that if your story has disappointment in it, that is actually not a reason to object to Christmas, but all the more reason to embrace it. Because the story that offers the greatest joy begins in a place of the deepest disappointment. Which must mean this story is for us. It's about people like us. And it means that your deepest disappointment does not have to end in an objection to the joy Christmas offers. Your deepest disappointment can actually be the opening chapter. But if... Somehow, in, in our disappointment, we are, are going to embrace joy. Um, if somehow we are going to invite those around us as we sit with them to embrace joy in the midst of their disappointment, it's going to require some courageous steps on our part. What we choose to believe and what we choose to do. So how, 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 does that, how does that happen? How, in the midst of our disappointment, would a story like this 
tell us joy is still for us. And how do we access that joy nonetheless? Um, Here's the first thing. I'm going to tell you something that is going to um, annoy many of you um, because it is going to be the most stereotypical thing you could possibly hear in a church. Um, and uh, I just want to apologize in advance, but I also want you to know that I don't, I don't mean it. Um, but here's something that I think we would need to start by courageously embracing. And it's the fact that God loves you. We went to church, and you never guess what they said. They said, God loves us. Um, This is, again, something I think we hear so often. um, We become numb to. In fact, let me make it worse by by reading the most well-known verse on the planet. John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world, So congratulations if you are part of the world. Uh, That he gave his one and only son. How do I know he loves me? Because Christmas, he gave Jesus. That whosoever believes in him, whosoever chooses to believe in him, shall not perish but have eternal life. God loves you. Now, if you're like me, or you said something like this to me, um, my immediate response would go something like, wait a minute, that's the very thing I'm objecting to. If you look at the story of my world, and if you look at my life, then you, you're going to see that I live with longings unmet, and I live with deep disappointments, and I live with things that just aren't happening the way I desired them to happen. How can you tell me that God loves me, and how can you call me to choose to believe that? Something struck me as I read this story again. Look at verse 6. It says both of them, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. And it made me wonder, would God say that about me? And it made me wonder, would God say that about you? They live blamelessly in obeying what I've commanded them. See, because no offense, but I'm going to venture out and say that none of us can claim to live life in as godly a way as Zechariah and Elizabeth lived their lives. So here's the thing. If the sweetest little elderly couple that God called more righteous than you lived with deep disappointment for decades then you can be assured of the fact that just because you carry disappointment does not mean God doesn't care. If this couple lived with disappointment and God loved and enjoyed them, it has to mean my disappointment is not an evidence that he doesn't care, that he doesn't love me. 
For decades they pleaded with him, and he didn't meet their longing. And yet he was thrilled with them, and he sang over them, and he took delight in them. One of the reasons I think our disappointments make us object to God's love and the joy he offers is because I think we've decided the proof of God's love is the provision of my longing. I mean, haven't you ever said that something like this to God? And isn't this what we're often saying? No, no, no. If you loved me, then you would remove this disappointment. If you loved me, then surely you would give me the thing that I most deeply long for. If you love me. And the fact that you haven't given me the thing I long for is evidence that you must not care. And then Zechariah and Elizabeth step in and say, do not believe that lie. And those of us who are parents understand this. It is amazing how many times my kids have said to me sincerely and through tears, you don't love me because you won't give me that thing I really want that a bunch of my friends have. You don't love me. And they'll even rationalize this in their mind because I want it, true. You can afford it, true. And yet I don't have it true. So therefore, you must not love me. And all of us as parents know, I wish you knew the rest of the story. There is a bigger story at play, but nothing in that story includes, I don't love you. This to me is such a profoundly significant story For me, and the way I tend to stand off from God and what he offers in my moments of disappointment. And I think what God would invite us to do, just like we would invite our kids who we love to do, is would you choose to believe that I love you, even though you carry disappointment? That will change your Christmas. And I'm not saying that you're going to immediately fully embrace it. But would you be willing to courageously say, God, I carry this appointment, but I choose to believe. Because it's okay to say that this doesn't feel like love. And I hope we feel the freedom to say that to God. And it's, it's okay to say, I wish you loved me differently. And it's okay to say, I am so deeply disappointed. But I think what the story would say, what Zechariah and Elizabeth would say, is it's best to say, yet I choose to believe you love me, and that I must just not understand the greater story. Something powerful about believing God loves me even in the midst of my disappointment. And the gospel is true that way. There's something powerful about believing God loves me even though I am a sinner. In fact, he demonstrates his love that while I was in my sin, he came after me. Do not let the fact that you don't see the whole story and do not let the fact that you carry disappointment keep you from leaning into a God who loves us even in the midst of disappointment and longs to deliver his joy to us even in the midst of our disappointments. And I think for some of us, 
this season may be an invitation to say, I choose to still believe. Or I choose to for the first time believe that you love me even in my disappointment. But I think there is something else that emerges in this story that I, I want to point out really quickly. Another courageous principle that I think God would invite us to. Look at verse 10. Again, it says, And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right hand of the altar of incense. Because again, Zechariah is inside now. The lots have fallen on him. Verse 12, when Zechariah saw him, he was startled. He was gripped with fear. I'm old. I'm going to die now. But verse 13, the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your prayer is always heard. Uh, your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a, a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. I think the second courageous principle uh, for us to understand and act on is that God calls you. God calls you. And I think this is such a crucial piece in the story. And um, God calls you. And I, I don't think I mean what I think you may think I mean by that. But it's so striking to me that, um, not the fact that the angel came to Zechariah, um, it's striking to me where the angel came to Zechariah. Because according to the story, Zechariah is in the temple. Why is Zechariah in the temple? Because he's a Levite, and he's bred to serve as a priest in the temple. Uh, that, to me, is such a profound thing. He was in the middle of doing what he was called to do when God showed up through this messenger. Wait a minute, Zechariah. I thought you were deeply disappointed with God. Yes, but my disappointment did not stop me from carrying out my duty. My disappointment did not keep me from taking the courageous step of doing what God had called me to do nonetheless. And it was in the middle of me doing what God had called me to do that he showed up in ways that were greater than I could ever have longed for. See, because here's the thing that I think often happens, is we enter into a standoff with our God, and we use disappointment as the reason to keep him at a distance. And what we unfortunately do is we say, if you say to me, come and get joy, I'm going to say, I'm not coming there till you come here and meet my longing. You've called me to be a good dad to the kids in my home. And I'm saying, I boycott, I object. I'm not going to do what you call me to until you do what I ask you to. I'm not going to do what you want until you do what I want. And for many of us, that's what the disappointment has done to us. It's kept joy at bay because we've ended into this bargaining relationship with God in which we say, you first, if you do what I want, then I'll do what you want. And God is saying, would you take the courageous step to believe I love you and that I want best for you and step forward. And some of us have taken a vacation from doing the things God has called us to do. And I love that Zechariah, through the disappointment at work and at home, continued to be blameless 
continued to be godly, continued to serve at the temple year after year, week after week, even when nobody would choose him to go in. And I think what oftentimes happens for me is my disappointment make me retreat from God. And for Zechariah, his disappointments were real and they ached, but he still stepped towards God in doing the things that he was bred for, the things that he was called to. It's a fascinating thing that no matter how many ways I want to change the story of Christmas and help my friends who live with disappointment and say to me, well, if you can explain to me why God did this, and if God would do this for me, then I'd consider stepping towards him. I look at them with grief because I realize I long for you to believe the way this works is God has already come down in his son. And he says, I want you to step towards me in faith. I want you to step towards me in obedience. And I'm not asking you to leave your disappointments and act like they don't exist. I'm asking you to step towards me with your disappointments and meet a God who comes to us in the midst of our ache, in the midst of our pain to deliver joy. And I think for some of us, we may be waiting for God to do something. And he's saying, God so loved that I've given you my son and I've offered joy to you. The question is, will you take the posture of receiving it? And one of the ways we do that is by choosing to believe you love me still, which is a hard thing to say when I look at my life. And it's the posture of saying, I will serve you still. Or I will take the step of obedience still. Even through my disappointment Zechariah and Elizabeth are heroes to me. And pictures of what it looks like. This story is not ultimately about God gave them a child miraculously. Because I wish that every story ended with God gave us what we most deeply long for. The story is that God showed up in the disappointment. I cannot assure you what God would deliver when he comes except that he'll bring joy. But I do know he will come in the midst of your ache and in the midst of your longing. And he would do more than you could possibly have thought to long for. So the question is, I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what disappointment is. Maybe keeping you cynical. Maybe keeping you at bay. And you are asking God to prove something to you first. And God is saying, I've sent you my son and I've sent joy to you. Would you consider what it looks like to take whatever step I'm calling you to. Maybe it's to forgive somebody, or or maybe it's a step to to serve somebody, or or maybe it's a step to just make the declaration or to share the gospel with somebody, whatever it is that you may be holding back. And for many in our community, it's the step of confessing their sin, which is the beginning point of experiencing God in his fullness. And so, Lord, I don't know what your spirit longs to do in us. I don't know where our disappointments may be keeping us from the joy that you bring. But I thank you that this story, the Christmas story, is about real people who experience real disappointment, about a real God who wants to meet us in the middle of it and offer joy and offer himself And Lord, we don't know what you're ultimately going to choose to do. But we know that you long to come close and offer great joy. So I pray that no one in this room would stand in a posture of resistance. I pray that no one in this room would refuse to do the things that you are calling them to do. 
I pray you would infuse us with the courage to do what's hard and even declare what's hard to believe, that you love us still. So we commit ourselves to you. So meet us, even as we do the things you call us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.